Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, Cynicans. Happy Chinese New Year to you. And a quick reminder that Jeremy and I will be back in Beijing this month. That's February. And we'll have a couple of live events that some of our Beijing-based listeners or anyone who happens to be in town are welcome to come join us for. First, we will be at The Bookworm for a show with Jane Perlez, the Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent for The New York Times. And we'll be talking about China's foreign policy challenges in the year of the cock. That's going to be Saturday, February 11th at 7.30, and tickets will be 100 RMB. They should be available at The Bookworm or on its website, beijingbookworm.com. We are also going to be doing a live podcast taping with one of our very favorite China reporters, Chris Buckley. Uh, He joined the New York Times just a couple of years ago after a very long and storied career with Reuters where he broke some really seriously big news. He's going to be chatting with us about Xi Jinping and about the Chinese leadership, and that's going to be at the Yale Center on Tuesday evening, February 14th. The event will be free, but seating is limited, so please register with us. Uh, Just send us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com with the subject heading Yale Center Event, and we'll make sure to send you back a ticket and save you a seat. We very much look forward to catching up with some of our old friends and making some new ones. Uh, So hopefully we'll see you in February and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day, through a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website to subchina.com. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from a mountaintop in Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free, 20 years in China from the age of 23, known to his friends by the name of Jimmy, Jeremy, Jeremy Goldcorn, greet the people. Hello, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, howdy uh, from uh, Nashville. Are you familiar with the ballad of Davy Crockett in South Africa? Uh, yes, actually, uh, it, it was known to us. It was a song we learned. At, uh, I learned uh, at my primary school. You never thought you would be introduced with it, though. I bet. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, you know the expression. It is said that under heaven, the empire long divided must unite. Long united must. Divide, And with those words opens one of China's truly great novels, Sanguo Yanyi, or Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Luo Guanzhong, who lived in the Yuanming transition period, it is believed, in the 14th century, uh, writing in the 15th. Luo was uh, 
writing about the tumultuous years of the collapse of China's Eastern Han Dynasty more than a, a thousand years before his own time, uh, covering events across the century from shortly before the Yellow Turban Rebellion that broke out in roughly 180 AD through the actual Three Kingdoms period, which ushered in China's long era of division. It's a novel that is still wildly popular in China, and I would go so far as to say that you can't call yourself a serious student of China and not be familiar, at least with the overall plot, the bold heroes and the, the villains, the master strategists who are all its principal characters, with the, the central themes, the most famous stories and the stratagems. If you're not familiar with all that stuff, uh, not understanding those, you would be at a serious disadvantage. Would you not agree, Jeremy? You've read the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's almost like you can't really understand Western or at least Anglophone culture without a passing knowledge of the Bible or Shakespeare. Those are the um, two things I would go to, yes, for the language it contributed as well, right? Yeah, it's not just the stories. I mean, Chinese language, as it's spoken even today, still draws on words and phrases, proverbs, chengyu uh, from the Romance for the Three Kingdoms. Absolutely. Uh, well, to me, for sure, I mean, the fact that it's my favorite book and that I've just loved the story since I was a boy, putting that aside, I still think that Three Kingdoms is indispensable also for an understanding of the Chinese political culture, for the whole Chinese political worldview, and, and even for very important aspects, not to sound too essentialist here, of the psychology of Chinese people, especially of, of those Chinese men who feel the urge to participate in public life. Uh, in any way, whether in business or in academia, in statecraft or in, uh, in in the military. It contains what I've come to see as sort of the archetypal ideas about leadership embodied in the different warlords and the generals, the advisors in, in the novel. And the Three Kingdoms has made its way into every imaginable medium from the oral storytelling tradition where it began and on which Lord Guangzhou must have relied heavily when compiling his fictionalized account to Chinese opera. Uh, there's a huge percentage of Peking operas that are drawn from Sanguo yeah. uh, to Chinese uh, uh, you know, comics, cartoon, little cartoon books and other comic ap uh, adaptations. There are television shows and movies, video games. And I, I think you were quite addicted to one, Kaiser. I was, I was. And uh, your old Chinese heavy metal band, Tang Dynasty, actually used the opening poem of the novel as the first lyrics of one of your epic songs back in the late 90s, if Indeed I remember rightly. Yeah. The, the, the album was called Epic, and the song, you know, it was called Ye Yi, the, the whole album, right? Exactly. So... Um, the stories are immensely popular elsewhere in East Asia, too, in Japan, Korea, and in Vietnam. But the book has yet to enjoy the full measure of attention and adoration that I think it probably deserves in the English-speaking world. Um, that might be because reading the thing is pretty daunting. Uh, the Moss Roberts translation in English is over 900 pages long, uh, just before the notes and the afterword. Um, and so much that happens requires little side notes and explanations. The language, even in translation, is pretty dense. Um, and there are so many characters in it. I mean, there must be more than a thousand individual characters who are named. So yeah. it's, it's a difficult work to get through. And I have to confess that I have found the uh, comic book versions uh, a lot easier <laughs> to digest than the original text. Uh, I've got something for you that's more easy to digest still. Our, our guest today has done something which I believe is going to go a long way toward helping to popularize Sangu Yi, the romance of the three kingdoms in the West. John Drew, who happens to live right here in Durham, has for over three years now, he's been putting out this wonderful colloquial, very 
very contemporary English retelling of Luo Guanzhong's classic uh, on his Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast. That's at threekingdomspodcast.com. That's with the number three. He unpacks the story, provides all the side notes, explanations, all of the numerous uh, the characters that are referenced. He even does these supplemental episodes. John, whether you have set out to do this or not, you have built what I think is a really important bridge to connect China and the contemporary English-speaking world. So thanks very much for, for joining us today on Seneca. Well, thank you for having me on, Kaiser and Jeremy. been a big fan of the show, so love, you know, great, really mutual. excited to be here. John, it's a delight. Um, can I, before we talk about the book, can I ask, how did you and Kaiser meet? I mean, is it a total coincidence that you both live in the same part of uh, North Carolina? It is. It is a total coincidence. Uh, so yeah, I've been listening to uh, the Seneca podcast for um, several years now. So I knew that Kaiser was moving into the area, um, and I hadn't had a chance to just say hi to him online yet. And then uh, I guess one night I retweeted an article that uh, he had tweeted that he had written for SubChina. I think it was about Chinese Trump voters. Uh, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one. So and then uh, so he's that's how he uh, that's I guess that's how I popped up on his radar screen. And then I think from there he looked at my Twitter profile and saw that I uh, listed my podcast on there, and so that piqued his interest. And he dropped me a line, and you know we met, and yeah. Been great. Yeah, that was a real a lovely coincidence, and we we had lunch. and And I, I guess I'm going to issue a little spoiler here: uh, is that that I I managed to finagle my way into doing a guest reading of one episode of the podcast, which will be coming up sometime in February, right? That's correct. I think first week or two in February. Yep. That was that was a dream come true. Anyway, um, let's let's hear about you know. I mean, so you, you were born in in China. You were born in Guangzhou, right? That's correct. So, um, and you came over when you were quite young. Uh, but tell us about your early encounters with Three Kingdoms as when you were a boy in southern China. Uh, how did you first get turned on to it? Oh, sure. Um, so I think I probably started reading the book uh, around maybe seven years old, six or seven years old. Um, and the memory I have of that is that when I went over to my grandfather's house uh, on my mother's side, he had this volume of The Three Kingdoms, and I would just, you know, flip through that. And and it's amazing how, you know, attached you get to certain things. And it's funny that because years later, after I come to the United States and I wanted to get a copy of the book for myself, the Chinese version for myself, I insisted on finding the exact same version that my grandfather had, <laughs> like with the same cover and everything. So that was definitely a strong memory. Uh, and then also, of course, you know, just through popular culture, you know, whether it's operas on TV or, uh, in my case, a really memorable encounter was just listening to the story on the radio. Oh, the Ping Shu. The Ping Shu. Oh, yep. yeah. Uh-huh. And at that time, you know, I think it was uh, a guy named Zhang Yuejie. He's one of those guys who's like, Shua! yeah, yeah. He just was a master. Let's yeah. maybe we should ID Ping Shu. Jerry, why don't you, you tell us what are Ping Shu? So it, uh, they are well currently uh, recorded stories, often drawn from Chinese classics that are broadcast on the radio, uh, and that. If you've ever been in a taxi in many Chinese <laughs> cities, but especially Beijing, you'll often hear 
Uh, and if you're unfamiliar, can be a little annoying at first uh, uh, until your Chinese gets good enough to <laughs> to understand them, at which point you may start to enjoy them. They're so charming. I mean, they're usually these sort of toothless or mostly toothless old codgers reading them uh, in these. Oh, they're great. I, I love those stories. It, it really takes you back into, I mean, the, the hoary past of, of China's history. So listen, uh, the two of you are uh, pretty deeply into the romance of the three kingdoms. So before we get too nerdy about it, I'd like <laughs> to ask you to take a few minutes, and perhaps you should take this, John, uh, take a few minutes to give us the quick version. Um, so basically, I'm asking you to condense a thousand-page book into a few sound bites. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that. that's easy. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so the three kingdoms is about the period of division that happened at the end of the Han Dynasty. Uh, so the Han Dynasty uh, lasted for 400 years, but ended in, I think, the year 220 That's AD. Right. Uh, so the Three Kingdoms starts around the year 184, and it goes up to about the year 280. Uh, so it covers the collapse of the Han Dynasty, which led to the splintering of the whole empire, and eventually... Uh, that congealed into three kingdoms, and so they went out of for a while, about you know, I guess uh, about sixty, seventy years, um, and then eventually they were reunited into another uh, unified empire. Right. So I mean, I guess I would I would say it's, it's for a little more detail. I know this is probably a little getting into nerdy nerdydom, but uh, there's this gigantic uprising of these millenarian cultists called the Yellow Turbans. They're sort of quasi-religious Taoists, healing cult, that kind of thing. Uh, the emperor calls up various armies to you know the warlords, these these big sort of noble families to raise armies to suppress the rebellion. And then, of course, once suppressed, they don't easily put their armies to bed and they fall to feuding among themselves. And it follows, basically, the protagonist of the novel uh, is is one of these factions. It's the, the, the what becomes the Shu Han. It's led by Liu Bei. And he, he and, and his two uh, sworn brothers, Guan Yu, who you know, is later kind of deified as the Chinese god of war, and oddly also of wealth, go figure, and Zhang Fei, who is this big sort of Luca Brazzi of the Three Kingdoms world, this big bruiser. Uh, and the three of them, you know, in this, this, this famous oath sworn in a peach orchard are, are sort of the point of focus if there is one. So I, I've spoken a little bit about why I think the book is so important, but John, what do you think makes the Three Kingdoms such an essential text for, for people to understand China? Well, I think it embodies a lot of values in the way that the Chinese people like to see themselves, I think. For, and I think for one thing, the fact that it's based on history, you know, it's often said that the book is 70% um, history and 30% fiction. Just like Mao, good and bad. <laughs> there like, you so go. Everything it, else is 70-30 in China. Exactly. For some reason, that's the, the one standard split. That's a golden mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think the, the idea that, you know, that some of these things might actually happen, that these people were real, that's a, definitely a huge allure. Uh, but then you look at the individual characters, uh, for instance, Liu Bei, you know, he's portrayed as this very humble, very generous, compassionate person. And I think those are values that the Chinese like to see in, in themselves. Or, you know, you ask a you ask um, people, you know, what they see in themselves, right? I think, you know, Liu Bei kind of embodies some of that. Uh-huh. He also embodies you know, the fact that he went through numerous trials and he had, 
you know, he basically was down on his luck yeah, for much of the, yeah. exactly for much of the novel, and you know, and he was okay with he was you know able to roll with the punches instead of saying you know I'm, that's it I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory on page fifty five. You know, he got sucked it up, you know, roll with it, and then he had his moment in the sun. Yeah, you know, he sure uh, did. So I think that's you know if you know because of that that idea the uh, expression 大丈夫能屈能伸 yeah yeah. Okay, could you translate that? Yeah, a, a real man can uh, both bow and or can bend and stand tall. Right. Yeah. So, so just you know, versus say like you know uh, the stereotypical Western idea of um, what real man may be, you know, whereas like a, a guy only who standing tall and standing never, tall, never bending. Never bending yeah. Exactly. So I think you know, that kind of conveys what the Chinese view on that may be. They, they totally see themselves also, I mean, other archetypes in, in, I mean, a lot of, I think, Chinese people believe themselves to be inherently more clever and cunning, or, yeah. or they can think circles around other people, that there's a more complexity to the social situations that they're able to catch that other people might not be able to. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say... Um, Speaking of of strategies, um, John, how did you decide to get started on this long project to make a podcast out of the Three Kingdoms? And, you know, how did you conceive of the form it would take? Yeah. Well, so back in 2013, that's when my daughter was born. And uh, for about a year after that, I had basically no capacity, no brain power to do anything remotely intellectually stimulating. I remember that. Really well. <laughs> yeah, like for, I think for months, like my wife and I literally spent our downtime just watching uh, Hercules, the legendary journeys. <laughs> <laughs> so, but after about a year, you know, we started to get uh, adjusted. And so I started to uh, look for outlets for, um, you know, my try, trying to find outlets of creativity, try to do something a little more intellectually stimulating. And I had been you know, listening to podcasts since, uh, I guess, the mid-2000s, because around like the first you know, wave, big wave of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, you know, it was a lot of uh, kind of homespun efforts, you know, literally a guy in the garage with a microphone, you know, and figuring out as it goes. And, you know, there were shows of varying qualities, but... Also, you could see the passion they had for the subject that they were covering, and you could, you know, it was just a great experience, kind of like growing with the podcast, you know. And so that always appealed to me. So I started thinking about, okay, maybe I can do a podcast. And you know, being Chinese and having spent about two thirds of my life in America, I wanted to think about doing something that helps bridge cultures. Oh, okay. So you did deliberately set out to bridge cultures. Yeah, That's great. I, I did. I did, and. I thought about okay, so what can I do on that front? You know, there were already two Chinese history podcasts, and they were doing a way better job than I could ever hope to do. And uh, and then there were these two guys in Beijing who kind of had the market corner on uh, contemporary China issues. Who <laughs> those guys? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was like, yeah, okay, let me think about it. And I thought, well, you know, I grew up reading the Three Kingdoms and being totally immersed in the Three Kingdoms, and you know, as far as I could see, this book was relatively unknown in the West. And I thought, you know, it would be great to be able to bring that to a Western audience. And, you know, I had bought my wife, uh, who is American, I uh, bought her uh, a copy of the Moss Roberts translation uh, a couple of years before, you know, for her birthday. And she started reading it. And then after a while, she just couldn't keep up with it because it was just so dense and so difficult to really 
get into. And it, it really is. It yeah. truly is. I've right. had that experience with other friends too. Yeah. Yeah, especially at the beginning when the empire split, splintering into a million factions, and you know there are hundred hundreds of names to k- keep track of right off the top. So I thought, okay, let me try to do this in a way that helps you cut through that. You know, um, I didn't want to necessarily eliminate the complexity of the story. Uh, because I think that's one reason for the story being good, but I want to help people cut through that. Uh, so yeah, so that's yeah, kind of what I've tried to it's do. It's amazing. I mean, uh, there are a lot of battles with really complicated maneuvers or single combats, and and I, I remember you used to work as a sports writer. Right? I did. Yeah, I mean, did 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 that have any impact on the way that you're able to describe the novel's action on your podcast? Do you think that? I mean, I I see the connection there anyway. Um. I mean, I think in terms of maybe just helping me describe, you know, being able to describe the action, perhaps. I think maybe the, the more the more direct inspiration I took on that front was uh, from the Ping Shu that uh, I grew okay. up listening to, because uh, you know those guys were terrific at describing those things and making the words come alive. And you know, I knew, I mean, I couldn't hope to hold a candle to those guys, but that's kind of where I try to draw inspiration from. John, what's your day job now? Uh, so I work in uh, public relations at Duke. A noble profession. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Yeah, indeed. Yes. So, um, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about how the Three Kingdoms has great appeal outside of China, in other countries, in East Asia in particular. Um, but what about outside of East Asia? I mean, do you, you know, as you've been doing this podcast, have you seen any growth in the popularity of the three kingdoms in the United States or other Western countries? And how does it stack up against some of the other treasures of Chinese culture, like the other major novels as possible, I mean, what the Chinese government would call soft power assets? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so uh, there's definitely a few things I've noticed. First, I've discovered that there are pockets of Three Kingdoms fans in places I would not have expected. Let's hear about that. Um, so I mean, I found like you know, a po- like fans in Brazil, for oh, instance. Wow. Yeah. So I have I have some big fans in Brazil. I found fans in uh, Scandinavia, and then uh, I had you know, I have people somebody uh, email me and said, you know, I grew up in rural Kentucky, and you know, I just discovered the Three Kingdoms, and I love it. You know, so just. So people in places that you would not expect, um, just, you know, following the book. Uh, but then also I discovered that the Three Kingdoms probably has a much greater aware level of awareness in the West than the other novels from China because the Three Kingdoms has this long-running video game franchise ah, in the West. Right. Uh, and a lot of my uh, listeners said that they were first introduced to the Three Kingdoms through the video game and then uh, they became interested in it through that and so they checked out the book and found the book rather dense and so they found the podcast and so that's helping them to, to play the video game. <laughs> play the video game, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, for my, I'm gonna just tease. My recommendation will be of one of the the video games in that franchise, which I, I uh, the one that Jeremy alluded to that I got hopelessly addicted to back in the era of Sega and Nintendo. Uh, in, in the early 90s, but uh, it's just great. So, John, Jeremy said, you know, uh, how, how does it stack up against the other so-called soft power assets that China has? I mean, uh, it's, it's like you said, it's more popular in the United States, say, than, than Water Margin. 
you know, it seems to me like every time China sets out to do a movie that's supposed to, you know, have get some traction in the West, it's always the damn journey to the West. It's that again and again. And I'm, I'm tired of seeing the goddamn Monkey King. Uh, you know, and uh, why aren't there more great? I mean, Three Kingdoms to me feels like it would have a total appeal to everyone who likes Game of Thrones. I mean, to, to people who've read Tolkien, to people who were, you know, grooved on, who played Dungeons and Dragons, who were, you know, into medieval fantasy of any kind. I mean, it's it's got all of that stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, it seems like that's the big soft power asset. Plus, you know, it has all those other uh, appeals to maybe business people and to people who just really want to understand the Chinese political culture. What's what's why why aren't we seeing this just just taking off more? Well, I think if you uh, rename everybody Jason and Michael in the novel, then uh, <laughs> it'll probably do a lot better. I oh, mean, I right. think I mean I think part of it is literally just keeping track of all the characters and getting past the unfamiliarity, the initial unfamiliarity of the names and, you know, of the and also the cultural references, the context, you know, having the context. Right. I think the Game of Thrones comparison is kind of interesting. You know, I mean, imagine if you had absolutely zero context for anything, you know, related to Game of Thrones and that, you know, and all the names were, you know, just basically alien to you. But I think a lot of people coming to the TV show, not to the books, but to the right. TV show, were like that. I mean, they a, many people I've met said, "Oh, I had no interest at all in fantasy, or in in sort of you know medieval historical epics, until this show, and it's got me gripped because it's got all that human drama, and that's what Three Kingdoms also has. It's got so much of that human drama. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's so much human drama in there, but I think it's that it is the idea of okay, I can't tell Liu Bei from. Liu Feng from Liu Zhang from Liu Biao, you, right, know, okay, you know, and yeah. like when your your characters are talking, you know, it's like I'm trying to keep track of this, you know, how how, and I mean I think that distracts from the drama a little bit. Okay, and um, fair enough. And I so think Jason, we'll we'll call J- Liu Bao. <laughs> actually, I have seen a uh, version, an English translation where they actually change all the names. To oh. English, to anglicized names. That's crazy. It's very strange. Yeah, that's <laughs> not. That. I, I do not think that. <laughs> so um, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao was uh, a big fan of the Three Kingdoms and supposedly carried a copy of it around with him. And it's pretty easy to see what appealed to him with his whole life spent in war and intrigue. Um, John, who do you think he was channeling? Was he trying to be more Liu Bei with a sort of compassion for the Lao Bai Sing? Or was he more of a Cao Cao or a Zhuge Liang? Um, well, does anybody admit to ever being Cao Cao? <laughs> oh, he no, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, he admired Qin Shi Huang, yeah. so I mean, that's right. that's that's, that's so, you know, that's taking Cao Cao yeah. to another level. Even I mean, he's de- you know, I think he's definitely closer to Cao Cao than uh, uh, Liu Bei. Um, what well, one interesting thing I found out when you know just when I started doing this podcast and reading up on other things surrounding the novel was you know reading about Miles' interest in it, and I read that Peng De Huai actually positioned himself as Zhang Fei. Really, in uh, in the letter that got him uh, in trouble with Mao. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so like, uh, so you know, so it was. Can, can, can you explain what so that means? Zhang Fei, the Luca Brazzi guy. <laughs> so he's this guy. I mean, he's a badass. He's a former butcher uh, who who just joins early on. He's this in, in brawny, uh, not not 
he's pretty, not particularly bright. You know, he's kind of dimwitted. You know, everyone is amazed when he actually ever does employ strategy, which he does on a few occasions. But uh, he's he's also just forthright and really honest, and and speaks his mind even when when he, it, he knows it's going to get him in trouble. Yeah, and he was also the uh, uh, serving on the side that was opposing Cao Cao. So uh, when Peng Dehuai wrote a letter to uh, Mao offering some criticism of his uh, Great Leap Forward policies, you know, Peng Dehuai positioned himself, said, oh, I'm Zhang Fei. I think he meant it as, oh, I'm Zhang Fei, I'm not too bright, you know, kind of self-deprecating way. But then Mao uh, took it to mean he was positioning himself as a staunch nemesis of Mao. And Mao circulated that letter uh, <laughs> among the cadres and used that as a sign that, oh, hey, Peng Dehuai is against me, so, and that got him purged. <laughs> wow. See, it does have incredible relevance in contemporary politics. You know, when I joined Baidu, I mean, after not very long, uh, my boss's second-in-command, his sort of personal executive assistant, the guy who'd been with the company forever, he took me aside one day. He, he invited me to lunch, and basically he had one question to ask me. You know, he, he, he said, I heard you were a fan of, of Samuel Yayi. And he wanted me to offer an analysis of all the generals under heaven, you know, just to, to, to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the Chinese Internet companies just and, and make comparisons. To, you know, he, he, Which makes he a lot of sense because they're three big there ones, There are three right? kingdoms, exactly. <laughs> it's B-A-T. Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba. <laughs> right. Although, you know, Baidu is sort of like very on the ropes, right? So uh, maybe they're, they're like Liu Bei. And, 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 and clearly they saw themselves in that. As as they were, you know, they thought of themselves as the ones who were, you know, uh, this will strike a lot of people who are listening to this as very odd because they're, they're used to thinking of Baidu as sort of immoral, but uh, they they really thought of themselves as you know doing God's work, the the good guys. The, you know, anyway, uh, fascinating. I mean, it, it continues on to, to this day. Uh, I would definitely say Cao Cao had a lot of appeal to Mao. I mean, he, he, you know, he saw himself also as a great poet, as somebody who, you know, in a sort of solemn manner says, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are, what was it? A statistic. That's Stalin's quote. Yeah, yeah. that's Stalin. I mean, he sort of saw, saw himself in that mold, uh, somebody who could just uh, do things of an enormous cruelty and also of enormous creativity and... I, I think he was kind of yeah. It's interesting that he he definitely though these were archetypes that he was drawing on. It's it's pretty clear to me. Uh, I also I remember in in the early days of Silicon Valley. Oh, it wasn't really. I mean, it was, I guess in the eighties. Um, my my father had a friend uh, in Silicon Valley, and Winston Chen, uh, who was another Chinese immigrant engineer who had worked like my father did at IBM. He ran this company that manufactured equipment for the, the solar industry. It was called Solectron. They also did like disk drive controllers. Company is still still around and still doing fine. We visited um, them in California uh, one year when I was maybe in, in, in junior high or high school. And I remember him very distinctly explaining that he had this, his all his senior management uh, for their Monday morning meeting, they had to have read an assigned chapter of Sangui Yi. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and they were not all, not all Chinese. They was, they'd sit down in Monday morning management meeting and discuss it through the lens, you know, of business. Uh, he saw it as of having tremendous value as a business book, evidently. Um, I've not read any of them, but I've been in Chinese bookstores and seen a lot of 
Three Kingdoms based business books. Have, have you seen this? I've seen the books. I've not read them. Yeah, Jeremy, have you even counted these things too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they 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 sit alongside like a uh, guide to doing business ch- like the Jews. <laughs> 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 Between the Jews and three kingdoms, you'd have you'd win the business world. Right? Uh, that's, that's hysterical. One of these days, we should we should read one of these and see what what it's all about. Yeah, maybe not. Um, John, can you pick a favorite story from the romance of the three kingdoms? Like, if you had to tell one story, what would mm-hmm. it be? That's a tough one. But, um, well, one of my favorites is the uh, story of Cao Cao and his granary officer. This is also one of mine. Yeah. Well, oh, this is a great one. Go awesome. for it. Yeah. yeah. So, and this really... Uh, um, is it Wang Go or something? Like that? Yeah, it's like Wang. His last name is Wang, but I can't... Yeah, but, so, yeah. So, it really kind of shows the Machiavellian uh, streak in Cao Cao. So, Cao Cao was on a campaign, and his army was running low on provisions. And he felt he knew he just needed to last like a few more days. So he called the provision the provisions officer. The well, grain- he had secretly borrowed grain from 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 another general first from Swiss. Right, I think it was coming, but yeah. yeah, he needed to just like hold out, you know, subsist on what he had left for just a few more days. So he called the granary officer and told him, "Go ahead and cut the men's rations." And the guy said, "Well, the men are going to be up in arms about this." And Cao Cao said, that's okay. If that happens, I'll take care of it. And so the granary officer goes and cuts the men's rations. And you know, predictably, when the soldiers find out they're only getting half of their daily allotment of gruel, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they are all up in arms. So the granary officer comes running back to Cao Cao and says, well, the men are up in arms. <laughs> you need to take care of this. And Cao Cao's like, yeah, I'll take care of it. I need to borrow something from you, though, to help me do that. The guy says, sure, anything. Cao Cao said, I need to borrow your head. And the guy's like, what? So basically Cao Cao is going to execute this guy to punish him for cutting the men's rations so as to appease the soldiers. Yeah, so he nails his head to a board that says, Granary Officer Wong, such and such, executed for embezzling grain and distributing short rations. And before he died, the guy said to Cao Cao, but I'm innocent. And Cao Cao's like, I know you're innocent, but if I don't kill you, the men will rebel. So I need to kill you. But after I kill you, I'll take good care of your family. So don't worry. (laughs) Oh, that that put him at ease. And it worked, right? I mean, his men went on to win the the battle. Right. Yeah, it got him through like those few days and they went on to win. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's a million other great stories in there. I want to ask you, though, what, what is your favorite uh, version. I mean, there's the there's the maybe if you could point to specific versions, like there's the Xiao Ren Shu. I have a complete set, by the way, which I I want to share with you at some point. Right. Um, the, there's the TV shows. There were two big TV shows done in the last twenty or thirty years mm-hmm. uh, in China, uh, to whole TV pr- productions, uh, and then of course there's the movies. So let's let's talk about those three things. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, um, my favorite version, the version that kind of sticks with me most is the Ping Shu version. Okay. Right? Right. Because just you know, growing up in the 80s and when uh, there weren't that many entertainment options, uh, you know, at lunchtime every day, like everybody tuned in to listen to uh-huh. these guys. And, you know, so, and I remember vividly you know, just listening to them tell the stories and listening to the radio with my grandmother you know, who was living with us. So 
uh, that kind of stands out by itself. Um, and then as for the uh, other all the other versions, you know, the 1996 TV version uh-huh. was the one that I saw first. So that's always gonna be like the original uh-huh. in my mind. And it's kind of like how um, you know you get people who grew up watching the original Star Trek who will swear that it's better, right. even though the Next Generation was obviously superior. In Jeremy, have you started aspects. watching Next Generation yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, but you, I, I want to see what happens, because I know you just finished the whole original series. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, this country is is destroying my... Uh, my my lack of interest in TV. <laughs> oh, oh no, good. Yeah, no, we we have a super abundance of excellent television here. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's very sad. Yeah. Uh, so, John, uh, you know, there's a saying in China that young the young shouldn't read the water margin, um, mm-hmm. which is you know one of the other classic Chinese novels, uh, and the old should not read the Three Kingdoms. Uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, and if you could also answer, if I may pose a multiple question, um, uh, do you think that the romance of the three kingdoms has much appeal for women? Um, I mean, it's generally men who seem to be, uh, you know, ardent fans of, of the book. And I mean, Kaiser's probably typical. He has a lot of <laughs> macho obsessions like swords and heavy metal. Uh, <laughs> you know, whereas, say, like uh, one of the other four great novels of China, The Dream of the Red Chamber, Hong Lo Meng, is, seems to be very popular among women. Um, what do you make of all of this? The Young, old, novels. and the gender <laughs> divide. Yeah, yeah. so I uh, want well, to take the uh, gender question first. Uh, so, you know, I watched, it, I watched the TV show with my wife, and, you know, at the end of it, she said, wow, that was epic. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, I mean, so she really enjoyed it. Now, I mean, she enjoyed it under with the full understanding that this was, you know, a novel written in the 1300s, you know, about a period from the 200s, and that, you know, there were basically very little uh, action for women. Right. You know, there's no, really no, not a lot of significant roles, and the significant roles that are there are not uh, positive ones, generally. Diao Chan and Xiao Qiao, basically. Diao Chan and Xiao were kind of the exceptions, but then they were also, like, you know, Diao Chan was kind of like, used as a tool. Yeah, she's a tool. Yeah, yeah you know, they, they used her and then they kind of jettisoned with her. Yeah, yeah. jettisoned her. And then it's either that or you have the evil stepmother uh, motif, um, like Liu Biao's wife, oh, who, right, yeah, right, right. who tries to uh, kill with his Mao, son. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Yuan Shao's wife. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, she's, so, she's evil too. Oh, my God. It's yep, terrible. So, it's such a mm-hmm. sexist book. Yeah, yeah. So it, Oh, and it, there's also that whole thing where, you know, uh, I think somebody kills his wife and feeds him to, because he doesn't have meat to yeah. feed. It kills his wife and feeds Liu Bei. The meat. The meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just horrible. Oh, it's just a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, like, Liu Bei felt really bad, and later on he gave the guy a lot of gold. So maybe this book is not going to be particularly popular uh amongst. we can do a sanitized yeah politically correct <laughs> right i mean yeah you're not reading it for um you know a uh, it's progressive for values, strong yeah. female characters <laughs> oh man yeah all yeah. right so what um, about the the question of young and old you know why do chinese people say that young people uh shouldn't read the water margin and old people country. shouldn't read uh the three kingdoms um, well, because uh, they should be listening to the podcast instead. Young <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, and old alike. So I mean, the idea is that uh, the water margins is uh, filled with a lot of 
bloody action, you know, these impulsive, uh, basically Klingons in the, you know, <laughs> in the what, 14th century. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, they're just going around uh, pillaging, killing. Um, so, you know, they said, you know, the young should not read that lest they get um, ideas about just taking rash actions. And then the Three Kingdoms is filled with these uh, political intrigue, uh, all scheming, you know. So you know, the old should not read it, lest they get ideas of, of you know adopting some of these uh, this less than honest uh, politicking. Yeah, I mean, I've always heard it like like you'll become too Lehi if you <laughs> couple the experience of age with the wisdom imparted by a close reading of the Sangli Yi, you right. become just like too too formidable. Too formidable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about translations. Uh, you work chiefly from the Moss Roberts translation, which was published in 1991, and which I absolutely love. It's the one that I picked up in graduate school. Actually, I was was lent a copy by a professor, and then I never kind of quite got around to returning because it, it cost <laughs> it was like a hundred something bucks when it came out. It was crazy. I was a grad student. Anyway, I, I tried to do a side by side comparison or, you know, reading of, of the Chinese text with that, which was really edifying when I was studying, you know, classical Chinese. Uh, but you also used the Bruett-Taylor translation. Um, Charles Henry Bruett-Taylor was a, a, a Chinese Maritimes Customs Service official, a, a, a Brit. Um, and that dates back all the way to 1925. So how would you characterize the two translations and, and what do you like about both of them? Yeah, um, so I think the Moss Roberts version is a more faithful translation uh-huh. uh, more faithful to the original text whereas the Bruett Taylor version takes more liberties uh, and kind of tries tries to get at more the meaning the gist uh-huh. so it's kind of like the Moss Roberts one is more accurate line to line whereas the Bruett Taylor one is accurate when you read it in paragraphs or passages uh, and what I like about the Bruett Taylor version is that and maybe it's just a result of it being an older version, is written in um, kind of this more archaic uh, uh-huh, English. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and it's and that lends it a little extra oomph, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I remember encountering that one when I was young and, and, and quite liking it too. Yeah. Oh, um, good. I mean, what about the poetry? You, you do, you know, I mean, every time somebody accomplishes a magnificent feat or dies a really noble death, uh, there's a, a poem in there. Uh, which do you tend to go to for for uh, the the translations of the poems? Uh, I start with the Moss Roberts one, but then uh-huh. I also consult the Brewer Taylor one to see if uh, he might have a better uh, or more accurate translation. They're um, quite euphonious. Often they rhyme. They're metered, and they actually rhyme. It's pretty amazing. Huh? Yeah, they, uh, that is just incredible. And uh, what's funny is, so the Bruett-Taylor version, the original version of it, had no footnotes. Oh, right. right so which made it very difficult, because you know, one of the f- good things about the Moss Roberts translation is that it had so much footnotes that it explains everything. Oh, copious footnotes. Yeah. 100 pages of footnotes. Yeah. Uh, but somebody, if you go, if you go to threekingdoms.com, uh, somebody has put the Bruett-Taylor version online and added in footnotes. Oh. Like, added in uh, ex- you know, explainers. And they do it in line because it's you know a website. So they so if, as you're reading it, you see little pop out boxes um, of these explanations. But then you also they also allow people who are reading it to also add their own comments. So you have these discussion threads uh, on the, the novel as you're reading it. Wow! Yeah, so that's um, yeah. the, the magic of the internet. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And you see people going, "Wow, this po- this 
particular translation of this poem is just incredible. You know, they're just the people are just blown away by the translation mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. So for your 100th episode, uh, you had a listener Q&A episode where you answered a lot of questions from your faithful listeners. Uh, One of them asked you about the Three Kingdoms and how it's taught in school in China. Uh, And you did a bit of research on that. Um, Can you share what you found with your listeners? I mean, I asked my kids about it, and uh, they went to an international school, but it was a Chinese curriculum school. And they said that they're they're actually familiar with it, not through school, really, but from, from television and from, you know, uh, manga or, you know, cartoon versions of it, and from my, their dad's obsessive fascination (laughs) with it. Yeah, I think that kind of jives with what I found, too, Uh is that there's not a big focus on it, and when they teach the period um, in history class, uh, you know, what I found in the history textbooks were just a few pages, and they focus primarily on two key battles the Battle of Guandu, where Cao Cao defeated the major Yuan Shao, yeah. player in the north, uh, Yuan Shao, to, and that basically uh, cemented Cao Cao's grip on the northern half of the empire. And then the Battle of Chibi, or Red Cliff, uh, and that's where Cao Cao was defeated in his attempt to conquer the s- south. Conquer the south. So uh, that and that bat- that Red Cliff battle basically made it so that instead of one big empire, we had three kingdoms. Red Cliff, uh, you, you, you noted in your podcast, it gets like, how many episodes are devoted to Red Cliff? Oh my god, it's like 10? Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like two months worth of listening yeah. or something like three months worth of listening for mm-hmm. all about Red Cliff. Uh, can, can you give us a, a quick summary of the Red Cliff, um, what do you call it, section of the book? Yeah, so that it's so complicated, though, Jeremy. I mean, there's so much that happens. Just reduce that, that it into a thirty-second soundbite, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna try, try to do this. Okay, so Cao Cao decides he's going to march his, his forces south. Uh, Sun Quan uh, is approached by Zhuge Liang, who's Liu Bei's advisor, and and is convinced to join forces against Cao Cao. Uh, and they use all sorts of really, really clever schemes. Many of these that you, you've heard of. Uh, one of them, for example, is is called uh, straw boats to re- retrieve arrows, where in in which Zhuge Liang uh, predicts the coming of a thick fog, sends boats covered in bales of straw and kind of like human dummies, uh, with people hiding behind them, beating drums and lighting torches, and and f- f- uh, sailing them up close to the Cao Cao's camp, and then pulling them back once they're completely filled with arrows. He's pledged to, to deliver 100,000 arrows to his general, to the, the, the main uh, Wu general, or lose his head, and he does it. And it's kind of amazing that he, he does it. Uh, there's another great stratagem where... Uh, in order to affect the, the 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 setting of a blaze of all of Cao Cao's f- fleet, first they have one really clever guy convince them to, to hook them to all loop them all together with iron hoops so that they form a, a single platform that the horses can fight on because Cao Cao's invading from the north. Uh, but of course, uh, this leaves them susceptible to a fire attack. Now. Cao Cao's not worried about a fire attack. He's attacking at a time when the winds prevailing are coming from the northwest, so it's not going to hurt him. But again, Zhuge Liang seems to have like this advanced degree in meteorology, so he, he knows that on this particular day he's going to get a, a southeastern wind. And so he 
again, it's really complicated. There's this another great story. It's called the Kuroji, where where uh, this there's a famous expression you've probably heard before. It's one of those. It's Zhou Yu Da Huang Gai, So which means Zhou Yu beats Huang Gai. Uh, one is willing to do the beating, the other is willing to take it. It's just so that it will look convincing when Huang Gai uh, is beaten in front of spies they know are in their camp, so that he uh, can defect convincingly and um, when he when he defects in are a bunch of ships laden with explosives that come sailing toward Cao Cao's fleet on the day of the opening of, of the, the battle and set the whole fleet ablaze. The reason why Red Cliffs today supposedly are still blackened is from the smoke of all the burned ships of Cao Cao's fleet. How's that? Um, okay. <laughs> Wasn't 30 seconds. But <laughs> okay, right. I lost track of time. I got, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply into this stuff, man. So, John, yep. the, this project is, uh, it's been, it's a, it's a multi-year project and maybe you've got a year or two left of, of, uh, doing How it before do you, you get to the end of the book. Um, a year and a half. A year, a year and, and a half. half. Yeah. So you're going to need something to do after that. What, have you got something in mind? Um, thinking about it, you know, uh, probably, you know, try to do something, uh, still in this space of, uh, maybe using podcasts to try to bridge the cultural, the, the two cultures, you know, maybe do another of the classic novels, you know, I know, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, just not Kaisi. Huh? Just not Journey to the West. Journey, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I'll do Journey to the West because that would just get old really fast. Right. It would be the same thing every single week. Um, but maybe the water margin. Um, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, that one is, I think, you know, it's not as uh, dense as The Three Kingdoms. I think, you know, if just reading it, um, you're reading an English translation of it is actually a lot more accessible. Jeremy, did you know that Pearl Buck actually did a translation of it? No, I did not. It's called All Men Are Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's it's really quite good, too. Yeah. You should check it out. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, John, Drew, thanks once again for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, make sure to check out John's very, very delightful podcast and download a whole bunch of them ahead of your next long trans-Pacific flight. The podcast is at threekingdomspodcast.com. That's with a th- the number three. Or just search for your... You know, you search on your favorite podcast app for Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast. John, I hope you'll stick around and make some recommendations with us for Definitely. our listeners. All right. Well, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, go and leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store. I see many of you have, and, and I, I'm very flattered at that. Uh, and uh, Or, you know, wherever you go to review apps, this really helps, and it does mean an awful lot to us. Recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off, as is our habit. Okay, I would like to recommend a, uh, a small project of Chinafile, which is the website uh, about China uh, from the Asia Society. Um 
they have a Trump tracker, which is um, uh, updating, uh, constantly updated feed of news from the Trump administration that is relevant to China. Um, and I think it's something that will be uh, of a lot of use uh, to anyone uh, concerned about Sino-American relations in the next four years. And hopefully, uh, if I may display my partisanship, it will only be four years. But uh, it's a great tool when trying to understand the bleeding miasma of uh, the next uh, administration. Oh man! I mean, as as depressing as it is, I will I will definitely read that. I mean, I, I've checked it out before. It's it's great. I love um, Chatterfile. Just does great stuff. They're they're they are a perennial recommendation for me. A long standing one. Uh, okay, John, what do you have for us? So I have one for uh, listeners who re- can read Chinese, and one for people who can't read Chinese. Great. Is that cool? Okay. So for those who can read Chinese, um, there's a website that I found of. Uh, a couple of years back when I started doing the podcast, it's called Lian Huan Hua, and it's basically all the Xiao Ren Shu uh, from uh, when I was growing up, collected on, scanned in and collected on one website. Awesome. Yeah, it's, there are like probably hundreds, if not thousands of titles on there. So you have the Three Kingdoms, the Water Margins, but then also like stories about various historical characters, and you even have you know things like revolution about revolutionary martyrs, um, Xiao Ren Shu that was given to back in uh, elementary school. <laughs> do, 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 are people aware of how well these are drawn? Especially, I mean, God, they're they're amazing. They are great. They are they are terrific. Yeah, my John, John uh, tell me, uh, would you mind repeating the name of the website, Lian Huan? Yeah, it's a, the website address is lianhuanhua.mom001.com. Oh, God. Which, yeah, nobody's going to remember that. So. No, we'll, we'll, we'll link to it, though. <laughs> Thank you for, for giving that to us. Um, I've always fantasized about taking one of those and taking out the Chinese text and just supplanting it with English. Oh, that would be awesome. You know, maybe a project from my old age. For some stupid reason, I've taught myself to do comic lettering. Uh, I've gotten pretty good at it, so I can I can do sort of you know standard Marvel or DC comic lettering now uh, by hand, and that may be a project for my old age, which is uh, rapidly approaching. Rapidly approaching. <laughs> rapidly approaching. <laughs> um, and then uh, for the people who can't read Chinese, uh, I would recommend um, the new podcast from Laszlo Montgomery, um, Chinese Sayings, mm. uh, where he each week he uh, delves into a cheng yu. Uh, a Chinese uh, idiom or anecdote, um, you know these the thousands of thousands upon thousands of like four character sayings, you know th- <laughs> that make up part of you know Chinese conversations. How are you with Cheng Yu there, Jeremy? Uh, I'm a slow learner. I'm terrible. <laughs> I, I'm, I have like this gigantic. I, I was given two Cheng Yu dictionaries by my father in my life. One of them was or- organized by stroke order, and the other was organized, you know, by pinyin alphabetically. And so I managed to to memorize some Cheng Yu that began with one stroke, you know, with the, like the like, yi qiu zhi he, and stuff that start, started like uh, with the letter A. So like, ai wu shi shou, and and I wu ji wu. That's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> I, I, I will visit Laszlo's site. How many of them, John, are from the Three Kingdoms so far? Uh, so he's done six or seven episodes so far, and two of them are from the Three Kingdoms. Ah, not surprising. So, yeah, Which one, ones? Uh, there's one uh, based on a 
poem by Cao Zhi, oh. uh, who was uh, one of Cao Cao's sons, who was a great uh, literary scholar of the time. And then another uh, is about uh, an episode involving Cao Cao, the chicken ribs uh, episode. Oh, chicken ribs. That's a yeah. great, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we have time to go. The young show, the young show one. Yeah. That certainly gives a sense of how important the book is in, 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 when trying to understand Chinese language. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's up there. Like, you, Jeremy, you said Shakespeare and, and the King James translation of the Bible, probably. I mean, it's what you probably had in mind. Uh, yeah, I didn't of, say King James, but that is right, certainly but, what yeah. I had in mind. Uh, I would maybe, other comparisons, maybe like the Arthur... Uh, yeah. The Arthurian legends. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like in terms of like content and styles, maybe like Homeric, Homeric, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah, and some yeah, and some Arthurian legends. But then in terms of cultural re- relevance in the present day, I think Tolkien. it's Shakespeare. Oh, okay, you know, oh, Shakespearean. Shakespeare. Yeah. What about Tolkien? Tolkien, yeah, a that bit too. Of that too, although it's yeah. not. Um, so I, I promised I'm going to recommend. Uh, I'm going to confess first that I uh, in after listening to your podcast a lot and, and people keep talking about, you know, video games, video games, I, I, I decided, I said I hadn't played it since the early 90s and I decided to go online and see if Koei, which was the, the, the company that made this series, had come out with a new version of it. And I found one that dated to like 2008 or so and you were able, I was able to get it for PC. So I commandeered my son's PC, uh, you know, after his screen time had elapsed over the, the long holiday and i downloaded the game and it's tr- terrific it's it's called romance of the three kingdoms 11 it's an english version of it it's a, a turn-based strategy game and it's probably the best turn-based strategy game that i've i've encountered i i, I don't even know what that means it's just I'll, turn-based I'll show strategy you it's, it's, it's it's basically you know you 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 role play as one of the, the characters and and you control cities you have to you know develop the land and you run the economy, build and train armies. Uh, you, you, you have to try to employ men of talent. You have to use all sorts of strategies to turn your various enemies against one another or spread rumors or, or, or send false letters to, to I mean it's, it's very complicated and, and uh, it, it clearly has a lot baked in from the book. Uh, like people have these natural affinities for one another based on who they actually served in the book, uh, and it's it's a ton of fun. I can totally see why a lot of people who were exposed to the video game then went on to become fanatics of of the book. So, Romance of the Three Kingdoms eleven, that's it's the eleventh one in the series. So, wow. Uh, thanks, John. That was that was so much fun. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Jeremy, as always. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to hanging out with you. I'm so glad to have you here in Durham. I mean, uh, I, I won't admit that you were really the reason I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcord. Thanks to An La Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us, of course, on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.